0: Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. If you haven't been here the last few weeks, we're in the middle of a series on the soul. See the title of the series, Soul Custody. And hopefully your meetings, your Hill House meetings this week, hopefully you have a lot to talk about. Uh, This is something that I've been in since, I spent most of the summer, this is the only topic that I really was studying and meditating on and ruminating on and uh, it's just coming out and there's been a lot of life and I'm I'm glad to hear, many of you seem to be enjoying it, it's good news and uh, I'm going to stay in this for a while, I'm not getting out, so don't, yeah, this, this, you know, listening to everybody, this hits home, this is where we are, The, the soul is the deepest part of who we are. And thus, why, and nowhere else in the world are you going to hear anybody talk about this? So let me just open up in a word of prayer. I know Pastor Linda had a powerful prayer, but Lord, I ask. Lord, I ask that our eyes would continually be open as to who we really are, who you've made us to be. Father, we're not, um, we're not satisfied with the superficiality of this world. Father, bring us into a deeper understanding of who we are in you. Father, I thank you, Lord, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty, Lord Jesus. They're mighty in you for pulling down strongholds. Lord, I ask that any strongholds in this place would be pulled down. Lord, casting down imaginations, anything, Lord, that would be in our minds, that the enemy would try to come in and strike today. Lord, in anything that would try to exalt itself above the knowledge of you, we cast that out today, here and now, that the enemy would not have his way that our souls were made for you to live in harmony, to live in unison. Oh, Lord, may that be, that is my cry. May that come to fruition. Amen. Amen. I want to start with a little little history. Shocker. Um, On September 2nd, 1966, see the picture up there, a small fire broke out in a bakery shop in London, England. It burned for four days. Eighty percent of the city of London would be utterly destroyed. Over 13,000 buildings and homes were wiped out. It was called the Great Fire of London. And sort of an interesting detail, I think it's interesting, it started on a street called Pudding Lane, and when it ended, it stopped at a place called Pie Corner. God's wrath for all that is British food. Some of the worst fare in the world. Is it not? I mean, it really is. There's not much to talk about. In the aftermath of this great fire in 1666, new laws were passed in better preparing the people for a large-scale disaster. You know, one of the laws was that people, uh, residents of homes, had to participate in hand-to-hand bucket brigades uh, in case another fire broke out. Another law said that um, where is it, that buckets and ladders had to be present in everyone's home. But this was the most fascinating part of the story. A new law was passed that allowed for the incorporation of an entirely new kind of business that could underwrite property and provide financial compensation in the case of damage or loss. Anybody want to guess what this was? Insurance. Insurance. I see some people going, no, it's supposed to be a good thing in case there's a disaster, right, that we have insurance. It was called the Insurance Office for Houses, established in 1681, and it insured 5,000 homes. Why do I bring up that story? Because the need for insurance back then really arose from the human need for assurance, because we live in a world where fires break out, do they not? where people get sick, where accidents happen sometimes suddenly? Isn't there something in all of humanity that, that craves and longs for security and safety, right? You with me? You live in a culture of security and safety. Everywhere out there, it's permeated in this culture. Every advertisement you see, everything that we look to buy, you need to be safe. Buy this, wear this, look this way, right? How about this? One author put it this way, Leonard Sweet, He says, just look at our cars to see the security issue at work. First, we install seatbelts. Then we install shoulder belts. Then we build contraptions that put both these things together. Then we turn the shoulder harness into a boa constrictor that pins us to our seats and doesn't let us move. Then we install airbags. Pretty soon, we'll be riding around in giant marshmallows. It's not that far-fetched. 2030, would you be shocked if you were driving around in a giant marshmallow? You really would not be like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, right? Come on. You live in a world that is all about security, but how about this? This takes the cake, right? This takes the cake. You can now buy, if you have young children, infants, you can buy protective, um, like, helmets for them, all right? Let me show you a picture. Look at this. For your toddler, your infant, you can buy, yes, protective helmets for them. So when they're rolling around on the floor and they turn over... I see some of your faces. If you are looking to buy one of these after the meeting, you need to line up for prayer over here, okay? Just kidding. I ordered two of them. Watch Megan, seriously. I didn't tell her I was putting this in the sermon. I guarantee you, you would buy one of these. She's looking at me. Look at her right now. She's going, I'm buying one. Oh, pray for me. And I was thinking about it in terms of our, our culture of safety. Not only things like this, as crazy as they are, but think about all of the alarms that we have, safety measures to keep, protect us. We have burglar alarms, fire alarms, smoke alarms, carbon monoxide alarms, right? We have all these things that we, we use, we put in our homes, cars, wherever we are, because we want to be safe. Right? And then I was thinking, I was this, again, this, this illustration to me really stands out when Megan was recovering, she was in the hospital for a while after giving birth earlier this year to our second son, Nolan. And I was amazed that when I looked at the hospital, right, every hospital is filled with beds, right? And it's amazing, it's ironic that people that are in those beds can't sleep. You can't sleep in a bed in a hospital because there are alarms going off all the time. And how many people know what I'm talking about? her IV thing went out, right, like it ran out, right, it has to buzz and let the the nurses know that that there's no more, if one of those patches falls off, your heart monitor, you hear that flat line, right, monitors, whistles, bells all over the place, people coming in, prodding you, poking you, now everyone's like, listen, I already didn't like a hospital, I, I like it even less now, but right, this is, that's so true, and I was thinking about that, though, and I said, wow, it's kind of interesting. One estimate, now I did a little research on this, one estimate said that an alarm goes off every 66 seconds in a hospital. So it's a little over every minute, there's a, a, some sort of bell or whistle, alarm goes off. It's crazy. And then I was thinking, no, and looking, looking at some of the research, did you know what a lot of nurses do? What do they do? They mute the alarm. They're not supposed to, but they mute the alarms or they turn them down because they don't want to hear them. And we don't want to hear them either. Why am I telling you all this? Because we have become a society, a culture that is so proficient and competent when it comes to ensuring our bodily safety. But we neglect our souls. What if there was a soul monitor I said to you at the outset of this series, what if we had an MRI? You could see inside somebody else's soul. What if there were soul alarms inside of us? How many of us would be beeping and buzzing all over the place because we are tired and we are weary and our souls are shriveling up and dying on the inside? You know what many of us in this room are suffering from? Soul fatigue. We are a tired people. And this is the kind of stuff that we don't really talk about a lot, but it's really true. And the Bible tells us, yeah, it's good to guard your, your stuff, your resources, but we are to guard our souls, the deepest and most important part of who we are. What does Moses say to the children of Israel? These are his last words to the children of Israel. Look what he says. He says this. I'm done looking at the baby picture. There we go. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart. Do you see that in the beginning? This is for us. We are to keep our souls diligently. It's not the job of the person next to you. It's not my job. My job, yes, and the the other pastors in this church, we're supposed to apprise you of this, make you cognizant of this, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it is your job to care for your soul. So I ask you again, as I've asked you the last two parts, how is your soul today? Nowhere else in the world is anybody going to ask you that. They're going to ask you how your body is, how do you feel, a little achy, a little sore, a little tired. No, how is your soul this morning? Let's let's be brutally honest. Let's just say it like it is. I am afraid that church becomes a place, like we heard the music this morning, it was wonderful. I'm afraid, though, that church becomes a place kind of like, I had my phone out this week and it just it really hit me. We have in fantasy football. We have like this group message me thing and it's I have to mute it half of the time because the messages are going off all day, right? Jamal's laughing. He's part of it. He's the culprit. He started this group me message thing that now tries to trap us and like pull us away from civilization, right? So we have this so, and now this you can like and dislike these like messages. And I said, "Oh my gosh, is that what churches has become? Or Facebook? Some, many more, you know, Facebook. I don't use Facebook, but on Facebook you can like things. Is that what church, that's really what, what my concern is, that we would come in and you heard the music and you're like, I like the music today. You hear a sermon, I like the sermon, didn't like this. Is that what what church is really all about? That's what's concerning to me. And concerning above all else is that we would talk so much about our money and we would talk about our jobs and we would talk about our bodies, but we wouldn't talk about our souls. How about getting into it this, this Wednesday at your hill house? How about talking about your soul? You can talk to people about the superficial stuff, about your work and your boss or about your body. How about getting into the deepest, realest part of who you are, your soul? Because there is so much at stake. Look what Peter says. Peter puts it this way. Peter says, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Why did I pick this passage of Scripture? Because look at that last part, which war against the soul. How come, again, we don't realize we were, we're in a battle? There is a battle going on every day for the allegiance of our souls. There is an enemy that is at work, yes. There is an evil force that is looking to take our souls slowly but surely away from the things of God and a real relationship living in harmony. You may not like it, but you are at war. He wants your soul. I'm talking deeper than just, did I, did I ascend to, uh, to some doctrine and tenets of the Christian faith? Yeah, I already gave my life to Christ. Well, let me tell you something. There is so much more at stake. He wants more than that. He wants to take you out. He wants to take your family out. He wants to take every single part of you. He wants to, he's looking for the ruination of souls. City on a Hill Community Church, I have been given a message to bring you wake up, you are in a battle, your kids are in a battle for their souls. Man, there is so much at stake. And we've been saying for the last two two sermons, look, this is who we are. Again, nobody talks about this in the world. You look at the first part, uh, what are we made of? We are the body, yes, with all of its appetites and desires, And you look at the second part there, spirit, which is synonymous with will, our intentions, saying yes and no, and then our mind, our thoughts and feelings, you put all of those together, and when they're properly integrated, you have a healthy soul. And the world that you live in is looking in every which way to ruin that soul and take us away. And it's insidious. The enemy is insidious. We say it all the time. It's the screw tape letters. It's a slow process. It's sneaky. He doesn't come with the cape and the, you know, the horns. That's not the way he's coming at us. If he can slowly but surely take us away and have you real, think that you're not in a war. He's winning the battle. That's what he wants. Just go to sleep. Oh, and he's doing such a marvelous job, is he not? Well, look what the psalmist says in terms of the deepest part of who we are, our soul. Look at this. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. The soul is the part that connects every single part of us that, so that we can live in harmony and wholeness and oneness with God. That's what we were created for. I love what James says. Look what James says in, in two passages here. You have to see this. Notice here, twice it'll say double-minded. James eight, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This passage is really interesting because the, when you look at that phrase there, double-minded, in the Greek, it's dipsukos. Suke is the word for soul. In this translation, this is fascinating, it can literally be translated you double sold, you split sold, you fractured soul person. There is a fracturing of the soul that is going on as the enemy attacks us. So, what is, so yes, we're under attack. I see that. Last, last week we talked about soul satisfaction. I'm kind of staying on the topic. Because this is where we are, I think, in our culture, American culture. This is what we need to discuss and focus on. And I know one sermon doesn't do it. Two sermons don't do it. But we are a people that are soul fractured. So good at taking care of our bodies, but we're pretty darn good at neglecting our soul. And you know what? We, soul language, you look today, John Ortberg put it this way. He said, when you look at our soul language, where is it? Where did you, I put it somewhere else. I think it's on this page maybe i thought it was kind of fun i thought it was kind of funny he says in our day soul language often gets used in such soft kinds of ways it conjures up images of herbal tea drinking hush puppy wearing flower growing scented candle lighting conflict avoiding granola crunchers <laughs> kind of funny isn't that what we kind of think chicken soup for the soul and everything's kind of cool and just kind of laid back that really hit me no We need to understand here, we again are at war and the enemy is trying to split our soul, fracture it, and take us away from all that God has for us. How about certain sayings? Our language about the soul, how does it reflect that? I feel like my life is falling apart. Anybody ever say that before? You feel like your life is falling apart. I feel like I'm coming apart at the seams. I just can't seem to get myself together. Soul, language, soul, fracturing that is happening on the inside of us at the core of who we are. And so for the rest of the sermon, I want to focus on what is the one way, the top way I would say that this happens, going back to this verse, I put a lot of verses up there, but going back to what Peter said here where he says, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. That's the focus for the rest of this sermon. And I would say to you this morning and put before you that the major problem we have is that our hearts, in the words of John Calvin, are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. And I love what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller puts it this way. The central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. Did you hear that? The central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. I'm not asking you for the rest of the sermon if you have an idolatry problem. I'm telling you you have an idolatry problem, that I have an idolatry problem. We all have an idolatry problem. And Keller puts it like this. He says this too. oops, look what he says here. He says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Wow, it's pretty deep. Isn't that really true, though? And again, we live in a world where there is an enemy that is trying to convince us that he can do for our soul what God can't. That is a diabolical lie. He wants us to believe he can do stuff for our soul, the core of who we are, things that God in and of himself cannot do. I love what Tolkien said, J.R. Tolkien. J.R. Tolkien said, the enemy is not able to invent anything in and of itself. All he can do is twist that which God has already made. Think about all the things that are in this world that are wonderful. Things I'm going to talk about. Things that you may say, that oh man, that's, that's definitely an idol for me in my life. I would say to you, it was created, work was created to be something good. Family was created to be something good. We need money in this world. Sex, all these things that are part of our world. It's the enemy has taken and he's twisted something that was created to be good. He has distorted it. And he's done a pretty darn good job. Idolatry. Again, Keller said, the principle, the main principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. Wow. Don't you feel, does anybody get exhausted? I was writing, does anybody get exhausted by how we feel we have to perform in this culture? Our idols, I feel like all these things, and again, this is insidious, this is kind of deep stuff, but when you look at your idols, all the things that are drawing us away from God, I would say they put so much pressure on us to perform. You have to have the perfect kids. Anybody feel that way? My son's at Jameson's in kindergarten, I feel like he's got to be perfect when he goes to school, his report card comes home, Ado- kids in kindergarten, crazy, they have to be on the honor roll, they have to play a musical instrument, they have to play in sports, in your home right you have to have the perfect home feng shui everything's nice reflecting your inner beauty right Everywhere we go everything the pressure to perform is there our idols will take more and more from us and give us less and less part of this is this this sermon the, the, the thesis of this sermon is the idols that we have in our lives we th- and we're not, even, we're not totally aware of this, but we're wondering why we don't have real soul satisfaction. It's because we're chasing things and trying to find significance, achievement, and meaning in the wrong areas of life. You get it? And that's what I said before. We come to church. You're like, I'm here. I'm in church. I come to church. No, it's much deeper than this. I'm talking about who you are at the core of your being. Yes, that child agrees with me. Who we are at the core of our being and the idols that we have in our world, they're looking to exhaust us. And how about this? Can I give you, can we stop right now and reflect? Can I put up some, and I pulled this right out of John Ortberg's book, this piece right here. I thought it was really good. I said, I'm not even going to change this. I'm just going to throw this out there for you. Now, if this is you, I'm going to put up some statements here. Analyze your own heart. If, if If any of these statements even remotely resemble your thoughts, it's possible you've discovered the true devotion of your soul. And it's not a bad thing. Church is here; We're here to explore and find out really what's going on on the inside. We're not people that just want to live on the surface. That, that has never been this church. We want to go deep, at the, get to the heart of the matter. Look here, let me put some statements up. And this is for you to just look at. I think about money a lot, as in getting more of it. Sometimes I fantasize about winning the lottery or coming into a big inheritance. How about this? I have missed important family events in order to pursue my career. I justify it by telling myself and my family that this is what it takes to provide for them. Aside from family and others I love, there are things in my life that if they were lost or destroyed, it would devastate me. This one arrested me when I saw that. How about number four? If my doctor told me to give up alcohol, cigarettes, red meat, caffeine, etc., because it was seriously putting my health at risk, I would find it difficult to the point of being impossible. How about number five? If you ask my family what was most important to me, they would most likely refer to my job, my favorite hobby, making money. They would probably not say it was them. You know what's good? Can I stop right here? You should do this after the meeting. Instead of talk, don't come up to me and start talking. I'll be honest. I don't want to hear about little, little talk. Talk to other people about real stuff. If you come up to me after the meeting and do it, I've never done this before. I'm going to tell you, listen, I love you, but this is not the time for that in this church. I'm done with the small talk. Get to the real stuff that is substantial in your life. You say, oh, no, listen, yeah, is that uncomfortable? Yes, it is. We need, it's my job, we need to be uncomfortable. Aren't you sick of the superficiality? Richard Foster says it's, it's, it's whatever, something of our age. What did he say? It's the enemy of our age. I don't know, something to that effect. It is. How about asking each other these kinds of questions? I'm not saying going into work and somebody tomorrow, I'm wondering, hey, I was in church yesterday and... Pastor was talking about stuff, and you know, our relationship, we just kind of talk about sports and the Jets, and they lost again, shocker, or we talk about whatever, but the people that are close to you in this community that God has knit you together with, how about asking these kinds of questions? Wow, you're really uncomfortable, and I like it. (laughs) I consider myself an honest person, someone with good values, but I would set those values aside to pursue something important to me if I knew no one else would know about it. Oh, wait, we're not supposed to talk. James, really? Are you really going here right now? You put this up, this kind of stuff, stuff that we don't talk to each other about? No, that's not fair game. Yes, it is. This is the stuff that fractures our souls. Number seven, I have secrets that I'm willing to protect. Is that you? And then finally, how about number eight? I have desires that I prefer not to have my spouse know about. If I am confronted by any of those desires, I become defensive and try to justify it. So where are you in terms of the idols in your life that are trying to pull you away from God? Again, this is not condemnation. When I read his book and other, and I was studying, there were things that I saw in my own heart. That uh, you see how dark things are in your own soul. I said that to you at the outset of this series. How, what a daunting task as a preacher and having to do this. And as the Bible says, as leaders, we are to an extent accountable for your souls. So I'm telling you, it's your job, but it's also my job to help and cultivate your soul along with the other pastors in this house. Wow. Well, how do we handle this then? How do we handle this? Let's stop right here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll into some uh, little storytelling. What do we do with the idols in our lives? We all know they're there. And you may be sitting here saying, yeah, I've heard this story before. I know about the idols in my life. What am I supposed to do about it? What I am going to share with you is stuff that has changed my life. Maybe about 20 years ago, I read some stuff, and and this stuff, I'll I'll give credit to where it's due. One gentleman's name is Sam Storms. He's a pastor and and a scholar I esteem. Um, In the highest, he's just an incredible leader, and he has a lot of good things to say, and also somebody, John Piper. Many of you know who John Piper is, what I'm gonna share with you. I think this is the heart of where we need to go as Christians in terms of battling sin, in terms of battling temptation. I can't turn the TV set on when I hear things. It's all about willpower. You can try harder. Just try harder. You can do it. You can, uh, positive thinking. I'm just not into that. I'm just kind of talking to you today. You notice it's a little, I feel a little different. I just wanna talk to you because there is so much at stake for our souls. It's at times during the week the burden that I felt that I had to get this out and how hard it is. It's not easy to deliver these kinds of messages, but I know it's real and I know it's where we are and I know it's what's necessary. So with that, I shared this at a retreat some years ago. I've never shared this on a Sunday. I thought this would be the perfect time to share it. And I want to give you a little Greek mythology to get to the point of of where I'm taking this message. How many of you are into Greek mythology, fans? Some of you are like, I'm in church, Greek mythology? No, not many of you. All right. Well, story, how many of you heard the name Odysseus? You're familiar with this uh, Odysseus, the Odyssey, Homer, the uh, Iliad, the Odyssey? Well, the story I want to tell you as it's tethered to this is, is very interesting. You see, Odysseus, or his Roman name was Ulysses, if you've heard that name before, Odysseus um, is part of the Greek army. And you see, as, as legend goes, as Greek mythology tells us, there was a guy named Paris. And Paris was from Troy. I'm giving you the Reader's Digest, like skin and bones here. He's from Troy, and he fell in love with this woman, Helen. And we're told that her face could launch a thousand ships. She, he falls in love with her. She is with him. Her husband, she's married. Her husband, his name is Menelaus, tells his brother Agamemnon, who is the head of Greece, he's the head of all of Greece, I want my wife back. Odysseus is part of this uh, group of individuals that will go and try to bring Helen back. When they go, they sail into Troy, what happens? They bring all their boats, all their fleet, and they get off and they get to the city of Troy and what happens? They can't, The, the walls are impregnable. They try to breach the walls and they're unsuccessful and they try and they try and they try and they realize it's fruitless. There's no hope. So then they, Odysseus comes up with this plan and he says, I have a great idea. Here you, this is the part you know, the Trojan horse, right? He says, I have a great idea. Let's get all the ships. Let's head out to sea and pretend as, you know, we're going to hide somewhere so they don't see us, right? The Trojans don't see us. And then we'll make this Trojan horse, and we'll just kind of leave it there at night. And they'll think it's a gift from the, from the gods. And of course, they'll take it in. Little do the Trojans know, and you know the story, right? They're inside of it, Achilles, Odysseus, and some others. And they start a battle there. And then all the ships from Greece, they come back, and they come back to the shore, and they take over the city. My story is about Odysseus has to then travel home to Ithaca. It takes him roughly 10 years. He wants to get back to his wife, Penelope. That's what the Odyssey is about, right? Ten years. All of the objects, all of the obstacles that he faces on his way. If you remember, Scylla and Charybdis, Circe, Cyclops. Remember some of these names? They all pale in comparison to one obstacle that he had to face. The sirens. Ah! And what were the sirens if you don't remember? The sirens were these cannibals, these demonic creatures that would hide their true identity. They looked as if they were these beautiful women and they would sing these melodic tunes on the shore and they would get the the boats, the men would be, uh, they'd be enraptured with the music They would be infatuated enchanted with the music and their boats, they would go in. They couldn't help themselves. They would be drawn in and right before they got to see the sirens there, they didn't realize that under the surface of the water, there were rocks and their ship would get destroyed and then these seemingly beautiful creatures would turn into these demonic creatures and they would eat the flesh of the individuals. Some of you are like, this is gross. It is, but it's a good story. Odysseus knows. You with, are you with me, by the way? Are you with me? Odysseus knows that he's going to face the sirens. So Odysseus says, listen, men, this is what we're going to do. You are going to put earwax in, every single one of you, because if you heard this music, you would be drawn in. The allure of this music, you would not be able to stop yourself. But here's what I'm going to do. You're going to tie me to the mast of the ship, right? Right? You're going to tie me to the basket because I want to hear the beautiful music. You are not to look right. You are not to look left. You are to keep rowing past. If I say to you, untie me, even though you have the, just don't listen. Just keep focused on what you're doing. Right? So there he is. They go past, the ship is passing by. He is screaming, crying out the sirens. One of the sirens even camouflages herself as Penelope, his wife, back home. So alluring. He's crying out with everything within him. Please let me go. Untie me. I want to go to the sirens. So I ask you, church, first part of the story, was he successful? Was he successful? Did he give in? Did he get past the sirens? This is not a hard question. was he successful yes he is successful he makes it past but i was thinking about it isn't that how kind of a lot of christians deal with sin and temptation and idolatry in our world the same way ulysses dealt with his problem you see what are we shackled to the mass with by fear guilt shame the approval and expectation of other people that's what we shackle ourselves to and you know what Let, let's let's really talk let's talk turkey right now for many of us in here the sound of the sirens what the culture has to offer us we really want it in our heart that's what we want we don't want this you don't want this you want that most preachers don't talk like this but it's true You want what's out there, and you will sit in here because of the guilt and because of the shame and worrying about what other people think of you. I will stay here because this is what I'm supposed to do. I will live my entire life, but there are desires inside of me that I have, that I want, that I long for, that I yearn for, but I'm worried what people are going to think. That's the truth going on. to your faces that's no way to live is that any way to live to live our lives tied that's what the isn't that what the pharisees did they were tied by all their laws did you know they were called the blues a bruised and the bleeding whenever they saw a woman they had to look away i can't look at her i can't look what they literally would walk into things and bleed they would get hurt there were laws that they followed Does anybody want to live that way? No. I don't want to live religiously and follow all these rules, and I'm supposed to do this, and I'm supposed to do that. That is not for me. I don't want to be held back. There are desires and things that God has put inside of all of us. You were a creature that was made for pleasure. Pleasure. How come we don't hear that word in church? You were created for pleasure. And C.S. Lewis says it. I didn't put the quote up. I put it up a million times. God doesn't find our desires too strong. They're too weak. Right? We're we're playing with mud pies on the seashore when an eternal vacation at sea is offered to us. That's what we settle for. And there it is. What does Satan say? What it's, Satan says God is holding out on you. That the sirens, what they have to offer you, is better than what God has. That's the diabolical lie that he believed and took one-third of all the angels. Yes, did you hear what I said? One-third of all the angels in heaven fell with Lucifer. Because he believed that he should be where God is. They fell, and that's the same lie he has been telling billions of people that have have graced this planet that God is holding out on you. Now, can I give you the other other side of the story now? You ready for this? More Greek mythology? How many of you know Jason and the Argonauts? Ooh, okay, okay. More hands on that. Surprised. Jason and his men traveled to the other side of the world in search of the... Golden fleece, good, all right. It's supposed to have healing powers. He is also warned about the sirens, same thing. So he has to go past the sirens just like Odysseus did. What is the method that he is going to use? You know what he says? Look at this, this is what he says. He says, I'm not gonna have the men put wax in their ears. I'm not gonna tie myself to the mast of the ship. I am going to bring greatest musician in the ancient greek world with us orpheus he played the lyre he played the flute played the harp he is the most amazing musician and he says here's what i'm going to do gentlemen as we go past i am going to have orpheus play his music they are going to be playing their music the sirens." the music from Orpheus will be more melodic and it'll be more beautiful than the music that you are going to hear from the sirens. You see, he didn't say, tie me to the mast of the ship, right? You have to put the wax in yours. You have to follow certain rules. Suppress the desire that you have inside. You can't want this. You can't want that. No, no, no. He says, I believe that you will be captivated, enraptured by a greater noise, a greater pleasure. Do you see what I'm trying to say, Where I'm getting at in terms of Christianity? Christianity, one pleasure has to be replaced by a superior pleasure. You don't turn away by willpower. You don't do that. You turn towards something else. And I'm here to tell you as a preacher, as one of your preachers, we haven't turned hard and strong enough towards the cross. How come we sing these songs, you satisfy, only you satisfy Jason understood and figured it out that there was a sweeter song that was being played. We have a distorted image of Christianity. Both men obeyed, but only one was changed. Only one! You can follow all the rules. You can come here. You can know your Bible. It doesn't mean your soul is healthy. It doesn't mean your soul is healthy. What is it, Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You are supposed to be, and this is his term, I love it, from Jonathan Edwards too, we are supposed to be Christian hedonists, hedonists, a word that connotes, oh my gosh, worldly pleasure, no. Look at some of the passages from scripture. Delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself, Think at the senses, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I'm here to tell you there is water that is here, living water that can feed your soul. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards put it this way too. This is the Puritan preacher from the 1700s look what he said it is our responsibility to lay ourselves in the way of allurement. so how does this happen you can't please do not leave here i'm almost done you can't leave here today and say i want to be like jason i just please make me i'm going to i'm going to act like jason you can't just be like jason what do i mean You have to position yourself, posture yourself in such a way so that the Spirit of God, if you had, let's use a ship analogy, a, a, a sailboat, sailboat. I know nothing about boats. But I know if I'm setting my sail and I'm in that boat, I can't make the winds blow, but I can set myself up, I can set the boat up so that God can blow, that God can move. What does that mean? There are ways that we have to set up our lives so that this can happen, so that he does become that superior pleasure. Every single human being to the core of their being, their soul was created for this, was created to experience a superior pleasure inside. It's the only way it's gonna happen, the only way. What does that look like? What does that look like in our lives? In terms of, of, of alluring, you know, get, putting our, posturing ourselves, putting ourselves in position. Why do we make it so complicated? Why do we make it so complicated? How many of us are actually, we're really getting into the word. We're really reading the word on a daily basis. Giving him a chance, only he satisfies. How about giving him a chance? How about getting into some biographies? How about reading about saints from the past? Things that they did. These are just two of the ways. I just wrote down a whole list. Worship. How about, what about the distractions? What are the things on a daily basis that are diverting your eyes and attention from the splendor and the grandeur of who God is? What about creation? How many times are we going out in creation and just spending time and walking around and seeing how beautiful it is and it draws us into who God is and how wonderful he is? How about community? Do we realize we can't do it all? That's what the hill houses are for. That's what hill houses are for. That is another way that we hear the beautiful music and our hearts are transformed. Again, you can't make it happen. Last illustration. If you wanted to get struck by lightning, please don't try this. If you wanted to get struck by lightning, what would be the best way to do it? I'll tell you what you should do. You would go home, if the, wait till there's a lightning storm, drench your body in water, get the biggest metal rod that you can find, drive your car over to Bald Hill, Stand at the top of the hill and just hold the metal rod up. Does it guarantee you're going to get struck by lightning? No, but the chances are pretty good that you may... (laughs) That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to position ourselves so that God's spirit can move inside of us, that we can be captivated by a superior pleasure. It's not fighting everything the world has to offer. I can't have any of that. No, you were created to want and desire and to experience real love. You were made to experience satisfaction, soul satisfaction. It's just it doesn't happen the way the world tells us it can and the enemy is twisting, and he's distorting things, and he wants us to believe, yeah, yeah, keep fighting, use willpower, use willpower, and keep fighting, we're not going to make it, you'll burn out, there is another life that is inside of you, and if that's you, this m- here's the question I have for you as we come to the table, and this is something I hope you focus on in your, your hill houses this week, here's a question for you, I love God, and want to more closely follow him, but there is one thi- always one thing that seems to get in the way, and it's, what is that for you? Remember what Peter said earlier. We are at war. Our souls are at war on a daily basis. And the danger is, is that you don't take this message seriously enough. We were, you need, you need, more than anything else in this world, to find that sweeter, deeper pleasure and there is, a, there is a battle that's going on, the flesh and the spirit. The battle is going on constantly. But there is, again, there's another life that lives inside of you. And remember that illustration. hope you don't forget it. I never forgot it when I read it. That illustration is so powerful to me. That's how we're supposed to live our lives like Jason did. I'm not fighting everything. it's where is No, there is, there is a, a beautiful song that has been playing forever. And once I start listening to that melodic tune, once I start getting into community, once I start getting into his word, once I start realizing all the distractions that that are out there, once I start getting into creation, all those things, that's when our spirit comes alive. We can't make it happen. You just set the foundation. You open yourselves up for the spirit of God to move in your life. That's the gospel. That's Christianity right there. So as you come to the table this morning, I ask that you would look at this question you would meditate, ruminate on this. What is this for you? What is the one thing that you would say? We all love God. I'm not, I, I, I know that's true. This is not a condemning message. This is something just to help wake us up. To what really the battle that we're in and what's at stake? So, what is it for you this morning as you come? Because I know there is power at the table here. There is power here to transform lives. There is power here because God is the bondage breaker. He can it, the shackles that you feel like you're in, and you're like you have no idea the idols in my life or how how the enemy has taken taken my taken me away. From all that I want. And here, it's hard for me even to come to church. I can't get into community. All these different ways. I'm so distracted. There is hope for you. Don't leave here thinking there's no, there is hope for you. Your soul can be restored. You can be transformed. It's just not the way much of Christianity says it can happen. And it's not the way the world tells us it's going to happen. There is a sweeter song that is being played right now. May you hear it. Ushers. Ushers. for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.